Well, let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. Let's read our text, and then we'll take a look at it together. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 1. Now a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who have despised my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he might be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and that is, you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Father, we come now and we ask that this would speak to us this morning. And Father, let us not despise you with the defilement that we may offer on to you. So Father, we just pray that as we go through this this morning, you'd speak to our hearts here today and show us how it's relevant for us. And we ask this now in Jesus Christ. Amen. We go now back to the nation of Israel, to the year 430 B.C., and as we are here now in Israel, the children of Israel have now been back in their land for about a hundred years. And since being released in 535 BC, the city has been rebuilt. The temple, which had been started and stopped and started and stopped, had been rebuilt. But now, as some time has passed, even though the children of Israel are back in their land... And even though the temple is built, and even though the city walls are once again constructed around Jerusalem by Nehemiah, 
And being encouraged by the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, since the completion of the temple there in 515 BC, the children of Israel now are growing discouraged each and every day to the point where they have concluded simply on the basis of their circumstances that God doesn't appear to love them any longer. And as a result, when they feel that they are out of favor with God, they begin to despise the things of God in the sense that they don't believe that there's any worth or value in continuing within them. They show contempt towards the things of God. Because again, they don't believe that God is with them any longer. Though going through the motions of it all, their hearts are growing bitter towards the Lord due to the circumstances that they find themselves in. And what were those circumstances that led them to conclude that the Lord no longer loved or cared for them? And therefore, keeping his covenant promises towards them and returning them to their place of prosperity within the world. After settling once again in the nation of Israel, and after rebuilding their temple, many stood back and looked at the temple that they had just rebuilt, and, well, they were disappointed to say the least, because it was nothing compared to the temple that they had previously before they were taken into the Babylonian captivity due to their disobedience towards God. So they had a temple and it was built and initially the younger Jewish people were so excited about this new temple. They were so excited about being back in their, in their land and so forth. And yet when the older Jewish people who remembered the temple previously, they looked upon this new structure and said, oh yes, it's the temple, but you know, it, it's nothing like the temple of old, you know. Oh, the other one was so much better. Yes, we've got a temple, and I'm glad you guys are happy about it, but oh, if you only saw the temple in my day, oh, you're missing out. This is nothing compared to it. Well, after a while, Ezra tells us that the, the younger Israelites, they started growing discouraged. Yeah, well, maybe it isn't so good. I thought it was pretty cool at first, but now that you think about it, now that I think about it, now that you mention that to me, yeah, I'm not too happy about that. So they never felt that they were back into that position of prosperity that they hoped that God would bring them to after the temple was completed. Because the temple now was a mere shadow of what the temple had once been. If that wasn't enough, the domineering Persian Empire continued their dominance over the nation of Israel. They were never truly free from that, though Cyrus had given them the ability to leave Babylon in 535 BC, Cyrus then kept close ties on them and he kept close eyes on him on them. And they, they were always known for maybe being a people that could rebel against the empire. So he kind of had his hand of dominance and suppression and oppression upon them. And so they never really felt free. Then came the agricultural problems. And of course, due to the agricultural difficulties, they either had a lot of rain or not enough rain. And the harvests were never enough. They were never plenty. And the people grew discouraged. And then they had problems with their neighbors. They were always getting 
picked on by their neighbors. And they're like, Lord, this is getting old now. What happened, Lord? Did you, did you abandon us? What's going on? And, and they couldn't see past their circumstances. And as a result, they concluded that God no longer seemed to be with them or love them any further. Oh, they were back and everything, but it will never be like it once was. And before God does any type of correction, before God starts pulling out issues that he sees in the hearts of his people, he reminds them first and foremost that he loves them dearly. The correction he is bringing about the children of Israel is that of chastening a a loving father correcting a child. And so before he goes any farther, before he gets into the hard stuff, he wants to remind them that he loves them greatly and them being back in their land is a result of that love. We often today look at our circumstances in life and draw conclusions about God due to those circumstances. When things are going very well and we're prospering and everything's lining up the way it should and all of our ducks are in a row, it's easy to say, oh God, you love me and look at how you have blessed me. Finances are where they need to be. I'm healthy. I uh, have everything materially that I need for a nice quality of life here on this earth. My family's good. Lord, it's good to see how much you love me. It's, it, it's obvious how much you've blessed me. And then so quickly, if any one of those things go astray or awry, it's easy then to change your opinion about God. It's just the way we are. We're people. And so if we, our finances go south, or if our health deteriorates, or if some other trial of trouble come upon us, we then have a tendency to think, oh God, what happened? Why don't you love me anymore? Is that true? Has God's love for you changed just due to the fact that your circumstances have changed? No, not at all. Because the Bible promises us who are believers in Jesus Christ that absolutely nothing will ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. Does God promise it's always going to be easy to be a Christian? No, in fact, he tells us up front it's going to be more difficult to be a Christian than to be someone simply in the world. But he gives us valuable promises that we can rest upon and that we can have faith within because those promises are meant to carry us not only during the times of pinnacle and the times of prosperity, but also in the times of valley and of difficulty specifically these promises are given to us. But that being said, sometimes when we conclude that God no longer loves us due to our circumstances, we then grow vulnerable and we are tempted then to move into areas of sin. Well, what's the point of following you any farther, Lord? Or what's the point of being obedient to you any longer? Hey, it didn't do me any good. You know, I've got this trouble now. I've got that trouble now. I've got this problem now. You know, Lord, it'd be just easier to go and sin. I, you know, I don't need to continue walking with you. And the children of Israel allowed that to happen within their own lives. Specifically, as we will target this morning, the priests 
there in Israel. Their hearts had moved away from God because they had concluded that God no longer loved them. And therefore, God was no longer going to take care of them through the covenantal promise that he made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even though they were back in their land, they still felt like they were in it alone. And as I stated, God, first and foremost, reestablishes the fact that he loves them. Before he moves into correction, he wants us to know that he loves us. But there are still problems amongst the children of Israel. That love is not going to allow God to simply overlook those problems. He still needs to address them. As a parent loves their child, but when they see that child's in a bad place or a bad position or has done something wrong, we are obligated as parents to make a disciplinary correction within that child's life. We still love that child, but we're obligated. And so God is obligated to his children to bring to their attention the problems. But it's not a wrathful judge in which they face, but a loving hand of discipline. Now, I always knew that my dad loved me, but I also knew that my dad's uh, you know, loving hand of discipline hurt at times especially my backside. And so I wanted to avoid it at all costs. The chastening of the Lord can be a very difficult, painful process. It can be. And for the children of Israel, it was. And I'd encourage you to read the book of Hebrews talking specifically on how God chastises his children because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. He's a parent to us. And it's as a responsible parent would, they discipline their children when need be, but those children must first and foremost know that we love them. Our series is entitled Indifference, and today's message is entitled, How Have We Despised You? And as we work through this series, we are examining our own hearts to see if it has been possible that we have possibly moved into a state of indifference concerning God. And maybe it isn't to the degree and to the depth of that of the children of Israel at that time, but maybe circumstances of life have moved us off target a little bit. And we're not nearly as zealous or passionate about the things of God that we had once been. And therefore, we don't take time each and every day to be in his word and in prayer. Fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ is a secondary thing if, and something often that is attended when someone simply has time. Maybe your heart towards serving another person has grown cold. And let us remember, though, that Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Or maybe those opportunities that you once looked forward to as you're interacting with those in the world, looking for those doors to open in which you could introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now you avoid them. Oh, I don't even want to get into that anymore with them. You know, they, the world deserves what it gets, and if it's going to hell in a handbasket, so be it. They, they brought it upon themselves. Is that God's attitude? And should it be ours? These are all steps to the path of indifference, to the position, I should say, to indifference. Stepping stones along the way that may, at one point or another, create in us a cold heart towards God. 
And the children of Israel were there. Indifference had gripped their hearts and their minds. They were resentful towards God. There was an air of bitterness within them that manifested itself in the manner of rebellion. And this morning, as we look now at the Levitical priests, these were the individuals that were supposed to be the contact point for the people of Israel between them and God. The priests really had two responsibilities. Number one, to represent God to the people through their example. And number two, bring the people before God as their mediary. And they were failing in both. They, were, they had allowed both to slip away, both responsibilities, let alone teaching the people the word of God that they would become more informed about their God and therefore falling in love with God and worshiping God and walking with God. So God turns to these priests before he deals with the people, even though he has now told everyone in the nation of Israel, I love you. He now turns to the priests, and let's think of it this way, the pastors, the leaders, the people who are in charge of overseeing the body of Christ. And he turns to them first to deal with them before he goes on to deal with the people because the people are only acting in accordance to their leaders. The Bible tells us very clearly that the people will never surpass the priest. So if the priest isn't walking with God and isn't being a proper example of God to the people, the people, we cannot expect them to be walking in God in a healthy manner. These individuals were meant to live exemplary lives, but were guilty of breaking the very law that they were supposed to obey and teach. The way they were serving the Lord was a disgrace of his name. And God now needs to deal with this. And we're going to be asking ourselves the question, have we despised the Lord by offering defiled sacrifices unto him? Now you may think, well, wow, that's really an Old Testament concept. It really is. But do you understand that as believers in Jesus Christ, there are several places in the New Testament that ask us as believers to bring certain, certain sacrifices to the Lord. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But the Lord approaches the priests in verse 6, and they, he says to them, now a son honors his father. A cultural aspect that all of us can relate to. And, and a servant his master. If I them am a father, where is my honor, God's asking his people? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, well, how have we despised your name? They didn't see it. They were clueless. They even get to the point where they require God to spell it out for them. Show me exactly where we have wronged you, where it should have been obvious to them. But this is the state of their heart manifesting themselves in these questions. God anticipating their mind and their heart by asking this question of rebuttal from them before they even state it. In verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted or defiled you? By saying that the table, I'm sorry, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Throughout the history of the children of Israel, 
God has always been uh, a loving father to them. It's something that he clearly acknowledges and that they acknowledge of him in Isaiah 63, 16. For you are our father, Israel says, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. He's speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. I'm sorry, the last part of that verse probably didn't get on the slide. That being said, they always saw him as their father, their heavenly father. And yet they did not honor him as such. And he even acknowledges that he is their father in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved them. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But where was the honor from them due to him? And when I talk about honor, I find five points in the Old Testament and in the New that describes the honor that we should have for God. And here are the five points. Number one, that honor should be uh, found in love. Our love of our Heavenly Father is the first and foremost manner in which we honor Him. Secondly, our respect of Him and for the things of Him. And number three, our obedience to him is an indication that we honor the Lord. And number four, trusting God by faith, believing what he has said and acting accordingly. And number five, glorifying him with our lives, not bringing upon him shame, but bringing upon him glory. When David, King David, sinned with Bathsheba because he saw her in the bath. I'm not, that's the only joke I got today. Um, Nathan the prophet came to David and said, look, David, you've given the people, the nations around, reason to blaspheme God. You've brought shame to his name. You have dishonored his name by your actions. We know that in other countries, bringing honor or dis dishonor onto a family can be a very significant thing and can have very, very significant consequences. Here in the United States of America, we don't seem to care about the honor of our parents. But it is something that they are due. As one wrote, to honor God means to give him the rightful place of authority by rendering to him gifts of tribute. Another wrote, he said, to honor God means to be faithful to him in all areas of life. These priests, because they had moved away from the understanding of God's love and therefore had not responded to him in love, no longer were rendering that honor unto him. But the priests should have at least known that they are servants unto God. And yet they had no fear of him, no reverence of him and they therefore acted disrespectfully towards God in almost every way and again this is all a result of them no longer considering the fact that God loves them and as a result they pollute the altar of God by disrespecting the sacrificial means in which God had prepared 
throughout the Old Testament. In light of knowing who God is and what he is capable of, there should have arisen within them a natural fear. There is no fear of God in the world any longer, and the reason for that, folks, is because there's no fear of God in the church anymore. We don't fear God in that sense of a reverence to his holiness, a reverence to his majesty, a reverence to his omnipotence, and so forth, and omniscience. We no longer reverence him in that way. We no longer fear him in that way, even though the Bible promises us that with that fear, that is the beginning of all wisdom and all knowledge. And they, as servants, no longer saw God as one in whom they served, and so they for, therefore no longer respected him, and therefore they moved to a place of despising his name. You see, the fear of the Lord means that we are to be so in love with our Father that we are afraid to do anything that would grieve him. Now, I don't fear that God is going to squish me like a bug every time I, get, I do something wrong. The Bible clearly tells me he understands my frailties, he understands my weaknesses, and there's an abundance of grace that he pours out upon me. But I do reverence him. I do fear him in the sense that I know what he is capable of. But as a child, I know that 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 fear is tempered by the incredible lavishing of love that he has bestowed upon me. But I reverence him and live accordingly. But they move to a place of despising him. That word despise means to be accord to little worth. They felt God was not worthy of such uh, attention. And they showed him in that despising, showed him utter contempt. And as a result, what they did is they polluted or defiled the very altar in which they were to sacrifice. And that altar was meant to be holy because that altar was the place in which the sins of the individual were taken care of by the sacrifices that were made there on the altar by the hands of the priests. One of the duties of the priests on behalf of the people were to bring animals unto God. Those animals were to be sacrificed there on the altar to show them that blood was required to kofar, cover the sins of the individual for a period of time until they sinned again, then they needed to be covered again. And another sacrifice would have to be provided. And then that continued on at different times throughout the year. But they polluted that altar. How did they do so? We'll find that in a minute. But the animals that had to be sacrificed were animals of perfection. They needed to be perfect in every single way. And the only way that those animals could be that perfect was for the individuals to take care of them for about a year period of time. Those animals often, once they were born and they were found to be without any type of spot, meaning birth defect, they were then taken into the home of the individual, fully well knowing that at a certain time and in a certain place, that animal would be sacrificed on behalf of that family. And while the animal was in the home, they took care of the animal to make sure the animal didn't hurt itself or get damaged in any way, shape, or form. So they took care of that little sheep. They took care of that animal to make sure that it was 
perfect and therefore acceptable unto God for the sacrifice. And what God was trying to create within their hearts and minds was this. This animal undoubtedly became very precious to them. It was of great value because of its perfection. So there was a monetarial value to it also. But they also knew that they, after a while, you can imagine, especially if there were children in the home, that the children would grow to love that little sheep running around their house. You know, we all have pets, right? Sometimes we love them and sometimes we don't. But they would grow very fond and attached to these animals. In fact, it's written in Jewish history of just that fact. But then there came that time when they then traveled to the temple, knowing that each and every day they got closer, that animal was going to be slaughtered on their behalf, and it was their sins that were causing the death of that animal. But see, all of that was pointing forward. And the children of Israel, the priests at that time, had now hardened their hearts to a point where, of course, they couldn't even see it and they have to ask God to spell it out. Please show us how we have despised your name and please show us how we have defiled or polluted your temple. Apparently, they had become so hardened in their hearts and they had rationalized their behavior to such a point that Malachi could portray them as daring God to the point of spelling out their wrongs for them. Let's pick it up here now in verse 8. And he says, Now when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? Why? Because they're not perfect. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Uh, will he accept you and show you favor? To be granted an audience with a governor at that time, you had to bring a gift to him. And if he was impressed by the gift, he would grant you an audience. Privilege of speaking with him, interacting with him. And God says, take one of these animals that are blind, lame, weak, sick, or on the deathbed, Give that to your governor and see if, number one, he grants you an audience, and number two, see if he's pleased with you at all with that. It's a rhetorical question. They knew very certainly that he would not be pleased with such a thing. Will he show you favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts, verse 10? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle the fire of my altar in vain. I have no pleasure with you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept the offering from your hand. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, if you will. It is the fifth book of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, written by Moses, and I'd like you to read with me in verses 19 through 23. As Moses spells out the condition of the animals... You have to guess. <laughs> Chapter 15, if you will. All of the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flocks, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor share the firstborn of your flock. 
You shall eat it, you shall, you and your household before the Lord your God year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. What was the necessity of this perfect animal? This perfect animal was a type. It was a shadow of something still yet to come. And the perfection of that animal, the, the affection towards that animal, all played into the type and shadow of the purpose of the perfection of that animal. And that is the fact that he, God that is, was preparing his people for the coming Messiah, the one who was going to be perfect from birth and remain without blemish his entire life for 33 years. And that animal represented the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what these animals couldn't do, save us and wash us completely uh, clean of our sins, they only simply covered our sins for a temporary amount of period of time. As a result, the individual then would have to repeat that offering again and again and again and again. But when Jesus Christ came, he paid for us once and for all. And there's nothing that God cannot forgive. Absolutely nothing. I don't care what you have done. I don't care how badly you've blown it. God can forgive you today because of Jesus Christ. And so by the priest offering these animals that had blemishes, they were missing out on this very thing. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Give it to your governor. Will he be pleased? No. And God goes on to say, I wish then you would just shut the doors of the temple. Don't dishonor me in such a way. Don't defile my altar in such a way with such contempt and despise. I'd rather you just shut the doors completely rather than continuing to go on in your hypocrisy and in your carnality. Just shut the doors, he says. And as he continues, one wrote, he said, better there were no religion at all than a religion that fails to give God the very best. If our concept of God is so low that we think that he is pleased with cheap, half-hearted worship, then we don't know the God of the Bible. In fact, a God who encourages us to do less than our best is a God who isn't worthy of our worship. Amen to that. There was another reason, though, I believe these priests were, bring, or were allowing these faulty animals to be sacrificed. See, the priests were given a portion of each one of those sacrifices, and that was their payment. That was the manner in which they provided for themselves. And as the people grew further and further discouraged by their circumstances and believed that the God no longer loved them, the priest allowed them to bring these 
defective animals just to, so they would keep coming back and back and back again. So we're not going to correct them. We're going to let them bring whatever they want and therefore we'll continue to eat and so be it. What an attitude. But that appears to be what has happened. As one wrote about this, he said, but there was another reason why the blemish sacrifices were acceptable. The priests and their families were fed from the meat off the altar. And the priests wanted to be sure they had food on their table. After all, the economy was bad. Taxes were high and money was scarce. And only the most devoted Israelite would ever consider bringing a perfect animal to the Lord in such, in such circumstances. So the priests settled for less than the best and encouraged the people to bring whatever was available. And God says, no way. Verse 11 he reminds them here in our text. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nation, says the Lord of hosts. There are four reasons, four obvious signs of their contentment in these last verses that I want to bring to your attention. Number one, as we just articulated, they forgot to remember the standard of excellence that God had set for the required sacrifices before them. They had lowered the bar. They had, if you were, dumbed things down. I believe that we today live in a society that has dumbed things down. If you agree with me, say amen. And as a result, we don't find individuals excelling any longer. We find individuals reaching that lowered standard and not desiring to go any further than that. And as a result, our nation has lost a lot of its incentive to excel in various areas of academia specifically. The second problem is that the priests seem to be under the impression that God was in need of their worship. That God in some way, some form, were going to be less if they personally did not worship him. They felt that he was doing, uh, they felt that he, they were doing him, I should say, a favor within their worship. And so in verse 11, God reminds them that, hey, listen, even if you choose not to worship me, all the nations will worship me at one time. And are we not doing that today? We're worshiping God today here at Calvary Chapel. His prediction has come true, but ultimately will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom of Revelation chapter 20. But then he goes on, verse 12, if you'll turn there with me. But you pervade it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is the food, may be despised. Meaning, it doesn't really matter what we put on this as long as we put something on this. They had no longer had any notion of giving God their best. They were completely content with giving God their leftovers. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. Oh, this is getting to be too much. Day after day, sacrificing these animals, worship of God, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. That's what I hear. I think that comes out in the Hebrew. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Just one thing after another, this has become weariness in and of itself. And God says, I love this. 
I wanted to do a whole message on their fact that they snorted at it. Wow, that's one way of looking at it. But I think it's more probably along the lines of a diss. If we had a teenager here, could they do it for us? They do it so well. Really? You know. They're snorting at these things, says the Lord of hosts. This is sad when God has, you're going to diss me on top of everything else? You bring what has been taken by violence. We would consider that roadkill. They're walking along to the temple. A chariot runs by and, you know, hits a, a lamb on the way. Great, we got an offering for God. And they pick it up and they take it and they offer it onto the Lord. Or it's lame or it's sick. And this you bring as an offering, he says. He goes on, shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? This burden, this chore. They have, number three, they had forgotten that it was a privilege to worship God and to have that relationship with him. And that's really what it was about, having that relationship with him through these means, through the Mosaic law. And they made a chore out of it. And as a result, as you know, that when you give your child a chore to do, you will always find the quickest and easiest way to do that chore, right? If you tell them to pick up their floor, they'll do just that, right? Well, my dad said, pick up the floor. You can't even walk from your door to your bed. I interpreted that as that all my dad wanted was a path. So I moved the toys out and I gave him a good three feet. I said, dad, you can make it from the door to the path. And then I was reminded of the loving hand of correction. But they said, what weariness this is, verse 13 again. And God says, you snort at it and says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, the lame or the sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept it from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says God, the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared amongst the nations, regardless of how you interact with me and treat me. This is what's going to happen. But he's desiring them to repent. He's desiring them to get right with him. And fourthly, we saw that they tried to swindle God, sacrificing animals taken by robbery, and they kept the very best for themselves. Even though they would pledge the best onto God, when it came down to that moment to actually offering it onto him, they turned from that. Today, we wrap this up by saying this. God wants our best, not our leftovers. I don't know when we lost that understanding. He wants the best of our time, whenever that may be. He wants the best of our lives. He wants the best of our uh, circumstances. He wants the best of our finances. He wants the best in all regards of these things. Not to earn our salvation or to maintain our salvation, but because of our salvation. Because of the love that he's shown us in the dynamic way that he did through sending his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. God says, now you respond to me in accord. And do it out of the love that you have for me. You see, he was speaking to the priests at that time there in Israel. 
But what people don't understand today is that we are called priests in the New Testament. Look at this, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the book of Revelation, and made us a kingdom he has, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And as priests, I don't know if you realize there are sacrifices that God wants to, us to make before him in our daily Christian walk. You're saying we got to bring an animal? I mean, I got to go home and finally sacrifice the cat? Amen. <laughs> I knew I was going to get that. If I said dogs, I'd get Dog Lovers of America protesting next Sunday. But cats, you know, I don't know what God made. You know, God assigned dogs. If you look at their dog backwards in a mirror, it's God, right? Obviously, they're anointed animals, you know? At least a dog will try to save your life. Your cat will just look at you and say, really? Feed me. Or where's my catnip? I know you're having a heart attack, but me first, you know. Let us look at some of the places where sacrifices are needed to be offered by us as believers in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never seen this before. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, number one that we would love one another as Jesus Christ loved us. That's a sacrifice that we can make as a priest unto God by loving one another in such regards. Philippians 4, 18 and 19. Well, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from uh, Ephratus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. Gifts that we give. Our giving is a sacrifice unto God. And he sees it in such a way. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 tells us that through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's that generosity, that pleasingness, a sacrifice unto the Lord. And again, we are not doing these things to be saved. We are doing these things because we are saved and he saved us. Does that make sense? Look at Peter. He made it very clear. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, we hear that again, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him, through, uh, to God, through Christ Jesus. You see, we don't have to be uh, one of the tribe of Levi anymore to go directly to God through Jesus Christ. You've got direct access through Christ. And as a result, 
we have the responsibility now of sacrificing unto him in such ways. And I think, I, I think you know what I mean. The attitudes of our heart, the love that we have for one another, the generosity that we display are all signs and tributes and sacrifices unto God to show that we truly love God and are worshiping him. But you know, that's not the most significant one. There's one more. And this is the most significant of it all. Are you ready? Loving one another is as important as that is. The gifts that you give, the attitude of thankfulness, the purpose of your life to offer these spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord is triumphed by this last one. Paul wrote about it in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices and the condition of those bodies holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The most important sacrifice that you can make unto God is yourself. Laying yourself before him and say, Lord, take all of me. Surrendering your life, your will, surrendering your goals and ambitions, surrendering your wants and saying, Lord, I give all of this to you, and now therefore you show me what you would have for me. See, God loves you. God wants you. He wants all of you. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's what God wants. And to love him in that way, you must come to the understanding of how God has loved you. And as Paul said, our only reasonable response to all that God has done for us, specifically that of the cross, is to worship God with our whole bodies, everything. He wants your mind. He wants your heart. He wants your hands. He wants your feet. He wants all of you, not just part of you. And as a result, if you will live under the banner of the statement that not my will be done, but your will be done, you therefore will lay yourself as a living sacrifice. Say, Lord, just take all of me. I don't, I don't have anything to give, Lord. It's all by your grace. But Lord, that's all I can do in response to the incredible love that you showed me there on the cross. All I can do is lay before you and just say, Lord, take me and use me for whatever you would choose to use me for. They despised him and they made a mockery out of these offerings. Do we make a mockery out of God when we give him the leftovers of our life? As God waits each and every day to spend time with his kids individually and privately, do we keep running past God on a daily basis because we're just so busy with everything that life is throwing at us, good things and things that waste our time, and God just sits there and patiently waits for us just to stop and to say, Lord, I love you, thank you. When it comes to stewarding that, that God has given us, when it comes to our marriages, are we looking at our marriages as a gift from God to be a testimony to all the world of the great love that God has for the church and the church for God? 
When it comes to our children, are we instilling in them the understanding and training them up in the ways of the Lord that they may grow to love God even more than we do today? When it comes to those things that God has blessed us with, do we take and steward those, uh, those things and say, Lord, yes, you've given me and blessed me with all that I have, the work, the job, the money that I make, everything, Lord, so it's all yours. And are we worshiping God and saying, Lord, thank you for all that you have blessed me with and stewarding everything that we have received with generosity? These are huge. Why do I say all this? Because look at as Warren Worsby said, he said, our offerings to God, our sacrifices to God are an indication of where our hearts are. For wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. For Jesus said, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be there also. And that's where we come to today. Have we despised the Lord by giving him second best? Has interacting with God become wearisome and tiresome and a nuisance and a second consideration. Know that God is God and he is not lacking for, uh, due to the fact of our disobedience, but he desires so much more. And folks, I don't know about you, but after 30 years of walking with the Lord, what else is there? Really? There's nothing in this world that compares to my relationship with the Lord through Christ. That I have the privilege, sitting there in my home that God has provided, surrounded by the family that God has blessed me by and has blessed you by, the family that you have and the house that you have. And I can sit and I can talk with him on a daily basis. I can wake up in the middle of the night maybe angst and fretting over something and I can go and I can talk to the God of all creation and just say, Lord, I'm hurting today. He never puts me on hold. He never texts me back and says, you know, please wait, I'm with Peter right now and you know Peter. His door is always open. And every time I go to him, the Bible says I can already anticipate what I'm going to expect. I'm going to be met at that door, not with an angry judge, but with a loving father and be met with grace and mercy for my, and help in my time of need. That's how much God has made himself available to us through Christ. And when individuals forget the love of God, it's not that God has ceased loving them, it's that they have left the love of God for themselves. They have chosen to believe something that isn't true. And as a result, they have moved away from God. 